0: Okay. Just some housekeeping that I would like to share with all of you. Last week was Thanksgiving, so I would like to take this moment to share my thankfulness with some of you out there, Um, particularly, um, and first and foremost, Jack McCarthy, who actually created the theme music that you hear at the beginning of the podcast. Um, I know that he worked pretty hard to create it and he worked with me directly and was asking me um, how he could improve it what i was looking for and he made the perfect piece of theme music um, he made exactly what i was looking for and honestly i can't say i'm surprised um, jack mccarthy is doing great things in music he's studying in new york city right now and i've asked him how that's going, and he said he's having a good time. He's learning a lot about himself and what it's like living in a big city. So, Jack, just thank you so much for creating the theme music. I really, really appreciate it. Um, It sounds amazing. Second, I would like to thank my family and my parents especially um, for affording me the opportunity to attend Rhodes College where I'm able to host a podcast such as this It's a very rare thing um, for anybody to be able to have such deep, meaningful discussions, such as the ones I have on this podcast, so often, um, especially with professors. So, thank you, Mom and Dad. Thank you, professors who I've been allowed to talk to authentically, um, especially Professor Wurls. Um, Not only have you been a great mentor to me, but Allowing me to talk to you um, About your childhood and your Deepest feelings about the meaning of life and love was Incredible and I know that it it will have a lasting impact on my own life and Hopefully a lasting impact on some of our listeners lives Um, And lastly I would I would truly like to thank the listeners because I was surprised by how many people um, actually listened to my last episode of links on life. And I really, I really, really do appreciate the support. um, Because more than anything, it just shows me that there are people out there who like myself um, are curious about the best way to live life. And honestly, for me, I'm thankful to be alive. I'm thankful to have this opportunity to talk with awesome people about this stuff. Um, but just as one more housekeeping item, I would just like to say that what we're doing here is is really, truly incredible because what I want most is for my 70 year old, 80 year old, 90 year old self, however long I live, hopefully it's that long, to Look back on what I've done in life and be proud of it. Because I know that there are far too many people who acquire a lot of wealth or a lot of power or make a lot of people laugh. And when when the time comes for them to pass, they may not feel fully satisfied. So I guess more than anything, how, how do we find satisfaction with our temporary stay on this planet? I want to... I want to feel fully satisfied. I do. And um, in today's episode with John, we talk a lot about that and what St. Augustine may have to say about that. So I don't know. Maybe maybe it's God who satisfies us. Maybe it's ourselves. Maybe it's other people. Maybe it's all of it. Um, but hopefully throughout these podcast episodes, I'm able to accumulate a little bit more knowledge about what other people have to say about this. And uh, I look forward to many other episodes with awesome people. I know in the counting right now, I have some Memphis entrepreneurs and businessmen that uh, I may get to speak with, which I'm really excited about. Um, And I have my eyes on a few other professors and students. So if I call you, just know that uh, I'm excited to talk to you and if you are listening and you would like to be on this podcast, feel free to reach out to me because I think it's it's best that I have a lot of different perspectives on a lot of different things that provides us the best, most all-encompassing worldview. So again, thank you, Jack McCarthy. Thank you to my family. Thank you to Professor Wurls and all other um, past, current, and future podcast guests and thank you to God and also the listeners out there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, on to the show. Today, I speak with John Howe a senior political philosophy major, a member of the Sigma Nu fraternity, the student body president at Rhodes College, and one of the most authentic and intelligent people I have ever met. I am excited that John is my first student guest. I've had multiple classes with him in my time at Rhodes, and seemingly every time he raises his hand, he expresses an incredibly thoughtful question or comment. He's truly a one of a kind student. I tried to keep up with John's intellect in today's discussion as it provides valuable substance for all of us to contemplate throughout the podcast and truly throughout the rest of our lives. Thank you and enjoy the show. John welcome to the podcast
1: I'm excited to be here yeah
0: <laughs> I'm excited to have you here yes. um, so I think one of the reasons I wanted to have you as the first student that I interview <laughs> is because you are the king of students at Rhodes <laughs> you're literally a student body president yes. um, so I want right. to ask you what's that like what's it like being student body president
1: of Rhodes College um it is very interesting uh, it does feel like a lot of work and a lot of responsibility um, but it's it's Really fascinating and, and, and very gratifying. I know that's very general, but uh, <laughs>
0: yeah. What do you What do you mean? Like, how is this so um, gratifying?
1: It's gratifying. It's nice to see uh, results of, of things that help. They're helpful to students. I know one thing we we did this year is uh, this is like small potatoes, but we uh, got a on student government. We got um, a shuttle service to go back and forth to the airport during breaks, and hopefully that'll sort of transform into a shuttle service that operates around the city, so students can like travel safely. But it's nice to actually see students like using that service. Um, and being benefited by that.
0: What was it like implementing that service? Like, are there a lot of hoops you had to jump through as a uh, president?
1: I was I was pleasantly surprised with that particular issue that no, there, there weren't um, right. a huge amount of, of hoops to jump through. I just, I worked with one of our senators, Arnaz Georgetown, and he... Um, I love Arnaz. Yeah, Arnaz is a great guy. Um, and I was like, you need to put together a proposal, find what other schools do, um, and... Uh, we presented it to the Office of Student Life, and they were like, "Yeah, no, this is a this is a good program," and which is crazy. That's like the fastest it's ever worked. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, um, I feel
0: like usually students want to change, mm-hmm. and then it takes at least a couple of months. Oh, to if get not implemented. Years. Yeah, if yeah. not years. Yeah. Usually, not doesn't even ha- doesn't even happen. Yeah. So to hear that you guys were able to accomplish it so quickly is, it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was very grateful to to you know, a lot of the students that worked on it, and to um, to the college for like doing it like lickety split. Um. But yeah, I know it's gratifying in that kind of sense where you can actually, you're actually able to see some of the the changes um, be implemented.
0: Are there drawbacks to the job? Like, surely it's not all gratification and glory, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, um, it is. I think one thing I, I get very nervous about is whether or not I'm um, actually, you know, when I'm in a room with with uh, administrators and they're asking us what is the student opinion that one I'm, I'm, not correctly saying what student opinion is, and, and two, then that even if I am, I'm not. even if that is maybe student sentiment, that's maybe not the right thing, that's good for the students and for the college, you know, we can want things and it's sometimes not the right thing. Um, and I, I, get, I get nervous about that. Also, um, you know, it's a small school, uh, and it, this is not, you know, like the world's most important position, but you still do get a, a fair bit of criticism. Uh, from, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. you're know, under
0: the gun of, I mean, how many different factions? Students, which in and of itself, as many different factions. Yeah. Uh, you have your trustees, you have your alumni, you have your faculty. Yeah. And the list goes on and on. Yeah,
1: which I was surprised. Yeah, there, there are an extraordinary amount. And I, I was surprised, um, trustees are, especially at this college, at this moment in time, you know, I don't know what it'll be like in 20 years or what it was like 30 years ago. Um, but the trustees seem to take on a more advisory role. Um, but yeah, no administrators. I mean, sometimes you. What, want, do, what
0: does that mean, advisory role? Uh,
1: so you know, like they'll come to to campus, and I've had the privilege of, of being at a board of trustees meeting before, and um, you know, there'll be different sort of reports, and they'll make recommendations about what should be happening at campus. But there isn't a lot of day to day management that really is the administration's job. Um, but so the, you know, to that degree, like the trustees are sort of watchful, but they're not they're not so watchful to the point where it's like they're constantly they're you know they're just like great critics or something like that. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, no, there's an extraordinary amount of factions. And, it, and I mean, even like you said, within the student body, I mean, there's so many different interests, just, you know, like student organizations versus students who aren't involved in a student, like a lot of student organizations, factions within student organizations. Um, and it, it does get pretty thorny because, you know, when you look at the college, there's administration students, and even within those things, they, they are themselves fractured.
0: Yeah, you say it gets a little thorny dealing with students. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like, do those thorns ever hurt? Like, is is there ever a time where, you know, you feel like you're under the gun of some faction of students and you feel a little anxious or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I, I would say so. I, there's, um, I think there have been a lot of events that have happened in, on our campus this year, um, some of which seem really easy to respond to. Not that they are easy problems, but there's there's a clear way to respond to them. You know, like, this this thing is bad or this is a very tragic experience. Um, but other things that are, that are really difficult... Um, there was a, a philosopher who came and gave a talk through Zoom on our campus, um, Peter Singer. I mean, yeah. not just a philosopher. We're I mean, he's the, ph- yeah. the most
0: famous philosopher
1: I in mean, the world. probably the most consequential ethicist in um, in the world, working in the world today is definitely Peter Singer. And he came to give a speech on pandemic ethics. And a lot of students were very frustrated by his views on um disability and, and rightfully so in my opinion I'm, I'm not the, the the biggest fan but I mean that's that's difficult how do you how do you say you know there is academic freedom and also how do you make sure that students understand that they are respected and, and they are wanted on campus when they are disabled that's that's a difficult line, line to walk and I I tried to support disabled students as much as possible as while you know also supporting you know academic freedom but I don't know if I always made the right call a lot of people I think were very upset with you know um, response or lack of response to it but I think it's it's important more To not necessarily make statements, but to, uh, you know, actually be there for students and and work on practical, real material things. Right.
0: Because that that does seem to be the dichotomy that you have to balance because you are the student body Mm -hmm. president um, of Rhodes College. And so you need to both address what the students want and their their emotions and how they're feeling about things, Mm -hmm. but also uphold, you know, values of academic life. Yeah. So you... You know, you're blending student social life with academic life. Is that, is that challenging?
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's, um, you know, I was talking with some professors, that's just, that's always gonna be a challenge at a place like Rhodes, which we call ourselves a residential college. Um, and there's kind of a great tension in that, right? Where it's like the college is committed to asking difficult questions and exploring these topics. And that means making people uncomfortable. Sometimes people who are both powerful and sometimes people who aren't powerful. Um, and uh, you know that's really challenging when you're also trying to build a community because you know community requires trust and asking difficult questions um, are not always the the thing that are that, that builds trust um you know and I, I i don't know i was thinking about this it's it, to some degree it's the, the problem of, of Socrates um you know he's asking questions to the city and the city can't Really handle those kinds of those kinds of questions. Now, I'm not in the position of a Socrates; it's, it's, it's slightly different. But um, you know, I think it is. It's a it, on the, the college is on a small scale that kind of manifestation of, of the the struggle between the philosopher and the city.
0: Um, and I mean, Aristotle talks about this as well, right? With mm-hmm. the idea of how do you balance being a philosopher and a statesman? Mm-hmm. Um, have you? I mean, this is a podcast where we talk about lessons we've learned mm-hmm. through our life experience. Yeah. Um, have you learned anything about that balance of being a statesman and a philosopher? I know you're not you know, running for president of the United States, but yeah. you are in a position of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a definitely a political position of authority. Um, but also upholding this academic standard, which I think is probably the most important part of any administration mm-hmm. um, across the entire United States. I think mm-hmm. the moment that we start losing our academic freedom is mm-hmm. the moment that we we lose our ability to do this. We lose our ability to have meaningful podcasts with a lot of mm-hmm. different types of people. And <laughs> that's just a small example, but right. the idea yeah. of a dialogue between many different ideas. Um all of that is to say, what have you learned <laughs> about being president um, balancing those two lives?
1: Um I don't know, it's it's hard to generalize into some sort of like general theory about what to do, but I think you mentioned Aristotle, one thing that I think is really useful about a lot of Aristotle teachings um is like the, the value of prudence doing the right thing at the right time for the right reason under the right circumstances um and it really is somewhat circumstantial right there I, I think there probably is a right answer to every problem but uh it's going to depend on the actors involved you know if uh and it's going to depend on the circumstances and what you're actually capable of doing um and I, I don't know I think what I've sort of learned is uh it's it's kind of contextual and you have to you have to kind of think and know who the players are in a situation before you can kind of make a, a good determination about what's happening, which is what I think goes back to like what I was talking about, you know, like material changes or like specific things I'd like rather than just like general statements, you know, you kinda of need to know, well, there's a group on campus who might be experiencing problems, who who are those group like what is that group of people, you know, I can theorize that, you know, disabled students may not have certain access to buildings because the campus is built really old, but like, you know, it's built a long time ago. Um, but are there actual students on campus right now who are facing those problems? And then we can, we can talk about where do they need to, to possibly like re, redo campus, you know, and that's, that's what I kind of mean is like, it is very circumstantial. You kind of got to know. The yeah,
0: you, um, I mean, eventually I, mm-hmm. I want to kind of get back to your, growing up life story but you just you made a connection that i just need we need to pursue this okay um we so we're in this class together called modern political thought with professor worlds who was in the last podcast Uh um and we've been talking about you know we started with aristotle Mm -hmm. and then we started talking about machiavelli and Mm -hmm. the prince and then we started working toward hume and Locke and now we're on nietzsche Mm -hmm. and this whole time, I've been kind of boxing all of them into different categories, mm-hmm. trying to figure out, you know, how they compare and contrast each other. But something you said just made everything connect, just... um, which is the idea of things being in, in, in the political life, things being um, conceptualized, like things mm-hmm. must be in a certain context. Um, morals must be derived from that context specifically. Mm-hmm. So we can't have this universal moral authority necessarily over... Um, all actions at all times. Uh-huh. Would you, would you agree with that? I mean, how does, how do you see that working into the different philosophers we've studied this year?
1: Um, how I would see it working into different philosophers or just, uh,
0: or just, what do you think of that?
1: Um, I think there are probably, I think what I was thinking, well, here I'll, I'll say, I think there are some things that we can unequivocally probably say are, are bad. Um, you know, I think we would, we would all agree that, you know, uh, kidnapping a child that isn't yours is bad. Um, you know, and, or, you know, uh, some other heinous crimes, um, I don't don't want to get too perverse on a a podcast or anything like that, but I think we can agree that some things are bad. But what I would say is, I think, um, what I was thinking about is the question of like moral dilemmas. Um, so when you hold, I think, uh, when you hold two things in value, how do you determine when you hold two things as, as good and they come into conflict, how do you determine what, what is good? And I think that, or like what the course of action ought to be. And I think that is kind of, um, and like, in, you know, for example, in what we were just talking about, and I don't want to stay on it for too long, uh, but like the Peter Singer issue is, you have two things that are vastly, are hugely important to a college academic freedom, and then also making sure that students um, are able to flourish and are feel accepted on campus or in the community, and those two things seem to be intention. And I think, in terms of of the ethical life and the political life, the question is, what do you what do you do in this circumstance? Um, and I don't know, and that's what I'm saying is like in moral dilemmas, I'm not sure you can ever generalize to it. To a some theory of this is how you weigh out a moral dilemma, but um, you can understand through particular circumstances what what one ought to do, um, yep. and that, that's difficult. I don't know how to do it all the time. For example, in the Peter Singer thing, you know, I, I tried to navigate it as best I could, but you know, I'm not I'm not omniscient. I don't know if there were better ways I could have handled things. You know, and if there were if there was different kinds of support I could have offered to students. You know, if I could have uh, done you know different things differently.
0: It does seem to me that the Peter Singer dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Um, In addition to being, you know, academic freedom Mm -hmm. um, Versus student life. It also seems to be this type of dichotomy between Philosophical truth Mm -hmm. and the debate between you know, what's true whether or not his Mm -hmm. argument has any validity Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. logic to it And then also this psychological um, We could call it state Uh, just like the idea that it's important for us to recognize. We're not just philosophical beings kind of floating Mm -hmm. on here we have emotions and we have feelings that we can't really describe but Are very important to Mm -hmm. our ability to achieve things. Yeah um, in life How do you how do you just feel about the balance between like the philosophical? Way of life and the psychological realm of life Um, Because I feel like in politics both are very important, right? You're dealing with Philosophical Mm -hmm. problems and how to solve them. But at the same time you're dealing with people so you're dealing with like psyches, not necessarily just
1: logical reasoning. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I'd have to, I have to think about it. I think that in, um, hmm, I think the philosophical life needs to understand, uh, and I, and I do think to some degree philosophy is should is or should be at least um, a way of life, in that you pursue truth and that sort of dictates how you how you live your life. Um, and I think that. Uh, it, that should be aware that people are not always going to be rational um well or they're not always going to be calm and level-headed and that the emotions aren't there i think that is a right. problem with a lot of modern philosophy is it, it sort of abstracts life too much you know in, or at least in not a useful kind of way um how does i don't know and i, I wonder if this if the what, what you're calling the psychological life if i can get like some sort of if i can if i'm understanding what you're saying I don't know if that necessarily cares about the philosophical life so much, you know. Um probably not. Yeah, right. You know, I was thinking about this, like when you're um you know, someone someone loses someone and they're so overcome with grief that they exactly. they can't stop crying. You know, maybe you can rationalize like what good is this maybe while you're you're sobbing you can think, What good is this? Like why why am I crying? It's not gonna bring anyone back. Um, and you feel kind of foolish and you know that it's foolish, but you can't stop. And um, I wonder if that's kind of I wonder if that's, you know, just part of the world is that that it's always going to be intention. I I don't, I don't know. Um, I think the Stoics think they have some sort of answer where it's like you can kind of train yourself. Well, I I mean, I think
0: beyond just Stoics, though, uh, Nietzsche would say that every single philosophical Mm -hmm. truth or moral set of beliefs is simply just a psychological um, way of appeasing ourselves, right?
1: I think so. And, uh, you know, again I'm not, a, I'm not a not again but i i am not a particularly great nietzsche scholar and i don't know i only know the little that i've read of him which has been in only in two courses and they have not been wholly devoted to his work um but he he does i don't think he believes in free will whereas the stoics kind of do depends on the stoic you read yeah um, right uh but i i and so i wonder if um but I don't think Nietzsche believes in in, in any kind of, of truth. It's all just the will to power, and whichever competing drive wins, at least at least has. It's the all the psychological, right? And so way of life. Yeah, which is why I find it difficult in Nietzsche's worldview to assign bla- moral blame to people, because um, they didn't really choose that. You know, and how do you how do you desire something else? I, I don't no. know. I don't know. If, and that, maybe that's not even something that people who have, who believe in free will believe. You know, I, I don't know. Um, but in Nietzsche's case, I find, it, I find it difficult to assign moral blame to people who, who don't want to take a philosophical view or, or who do take a philosophical view because if they don't choose that, then I'm not sure that they should be blamed for it. I mean,
0: that's that's the whole idea of consequentialism in general, right? Mm-hmm. Is that there's a problem along the way that if everything's just predetermined or mm-hmm. – I'm sorry, not consequentialism, um, determinism. Mm-hmm. If everything's just predetermined, then why does – Matter like -hmm. that can very easily lead you to nihilism,
1: right? And you know, I I don't know, I I always struggle with this, and I think free will can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people, or 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 no free will can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. And I do think we don't will everything that happens to us. Um, I do think we're constrained a lot of times by our circumstances. Right? I can't I can't just decide that you know I may have a great will to go to to France right now, but I I can't you know it's going to be at least a twelve hour flight if I got (laughs) to the airport right now. But also on another level, you know sometimes thoughts pop into her head and I didn't, you know, you're thinking about something and you're like, God, I just wish this person would stop talking mm-hmm. or you're talking to someone and you think, God, I just wish they would stop talking. And you're like, Oh no, I didn't wish that. I actually like this person. You know, I want to hear what they have to say, but also I really want to go to the bathroom or something like that. Yeah. You know? um, the, that, uh, the experience of not being able to get a song out of your head. Right. Right. And so in that sense, I guess, you know, free will is, is, um, you know, th- in that sense, like, you know, maybe people aren't perfectly free or something like that, but, um, I don't, I, I, Sorry, this was a bit of a, a bit of a tangent, but um, I guess this goes back to, I guess, like problems of, of politics and things like that or uh, moral dilemmas in that. Um, I think blame gets very difficult to place on people when there isn't some kind of freedom to, to choose things. So I, don't, I kind of got off on a little bit of a, of a side. side tangent. I mean,
0: I love tangents. We can keep yeah. going on tangents. <laughs> That's what this podcast is all about. Yeah. Um, but I guess before we go down mm-hmm. too many tangents. Mm-hmm. Um, were you like, was young John Howell very ambitious? Because um, I I would I would think that the student body president of Rhodes would be a rather ambitious person. Were you very into leadership positions as a kid?
1: Um, I wouldn't say yes. I think when I, when I was well, actually when I was a really little kid, I don't. I think the first like real leadership position I ever had was like in the Boy Scouts, um, not like Cub Scouts, but Boy Scouts. When I was probably like a teenager. Um, And that was mostly by accident. I was something called, like, a patrol leader, which... By accident? (laughs) It wasn't really by accident. I was just, like, the oldest kid in in the patrol, and so they they put me in. But um, I would say, actually, when I was a little kid, I really wanted to be a writer, and I think Hmm. I was ambitious in that sense, that I really... I wrote all the time, and I I, I wanted to do things...
0: How old were you when you were writing all the time?
1: Oh, God, I was... I was really young. I was like seven or oh six my or seven. Gosh. No, I I really wanted to be a writer. I mean, they weren't very so good. so unsurprising though. Oh yeah, I don't think the stories were very good. I was really into mysteries and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. I was also really into the Titanic and, and history, um, other historical things. But uh, yeah, and I I think I was, I don't know. I wouldn't say that I was an ambitious kid in the sense that like I, you know, I wasn't like a. A boris johnson where i woke up one day and i was like i want to be king of the world you know which is what the, the british prime minister said when he was a little kid <laughs> that's a <what> boris johnson <laughs> yeah said. boris johnson that was his great desire as a little kid to, oh be, to be king of the world which um you yeah, know i guess i guess he's he's working his way up i suppose um but uh no i think i i did want i think i did have aspirations at least and i, and I was going towards them so in that sense i guess i, I had some sort of ambition i don't think I really got interested in... If you're asking about like, like political ambition or anything like that, I, I, don't, I don't know if I have like a... I don't know. Um, I didn't really notice politics until I was probably about 16 or 17 years old. Yeah, I uh, feel like that's that's probably, pretty normal. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's pretty standard.
0: Um, so if politics and you know leadership positions weren't necessarily your knack mm-hmm. and you wanted to be a writer as a kid, mm-hmm. can we just kind of talk about like what your childhood was like yeah, growing sure, up? Yeah, sure. Um, what was your family like?
1: Um, my family, there was four of us, plus a dog. For a while there was not a dog and then there was another dog um but uh i don't have a typical american family we grew up in new orleans louisiana um my mom is from lafayette which was when she was raised was a somewhat small town in rural louisiana and my dad was from new orleans um and we were just sort of the four of us I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah just kind of a catholic family in new orleans
1: uh it? when i was born yeah uh religion has uh we're not all Catholic anymore. Okay. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: what were you What were you into when you were a kid besides writing? Um, that's a good question. I really, I, I, I really, I just said this before. I really like the Titanic, and I really like a lot of historical things. Um, did you just watch the Titanic movie, or did you? You oh, didn't read I, the
0: book, did you?
1: Oh, I don't know if there was a book. I did okay. have a lot of books about them. I think they were probably like kids. Okay, okay. They weren't like, yeah. Some no like page real his,
0: historical text.
1: No, stuff. no, not, not when I was a little kid. I did watch the movie at a very young age that I probably should not have watched it at. <laughs> um, yeah. but no, I loved, I, I, did, I did love that, uh, stuff. I, um, I should remember other things that I really liked as a little kid. I really liked, um, oh God, I have to think, I, to think, I know I feel kind of put on the, <laughs> on the spot. I really enjoyed, um, I, do, I just said this like mysteries, mystery books. Um, I liked camping a lot when I was a little kid, um, going outdoors and stuff. Yeah, you, like that. you said
0: you were a Boy Scout I was, leader. Yeah. You know, like camping. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, do you still camp? Is that something? No, you're unfortunately,
1: still I haven't. I do like going on hikes and stuff okay. uh, around Memphis. I know there's like and Shelby Forest. Um,
0: what What about camping and the outdoors? I
1: like so much? this is gonna sound really weird. I I don't know if this is exactly what I was thinking about was a little kid, but now. One thing that I like about the woods is they are so huge and so scary, um, Mm -hmm. and they're really fascinating. Um, I think, I think just because so many people live in the cities now, especially in like the Western world, we forget how, uh, intimidating and awe-inspiring nature really is. Uh, but I, I, really enjoy that, that kind of feeling, um, where it's just sort of like, you're like in the middle of all this wild and there's like so much that could happen out there. It's, it's very fascinating.
0: Yeah. You almost I mean, when you see like a very beautiful landscape mm-hmm. and it's, it's just quiet, mm-hmm. it, it really does drum up some indescribable feeling inside of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and have you had that experience as well? Like when you look out at a beautiful landscape or you feel the, the peace and quiet of the outdoors?
1: Yeah, that is, um, so I don't know. I always find that fascinating. That's one thing I've, uh. I noticed one people always say that it's so quiet outside when they get out. And that's true. You don't hear, like, the constantly like, humming of, of cars and people walking around. But it is – there is a lot of noise. Yeah, that's um, true. You know, like, there's, there's a rustling of leaves and from the wind, and cicadas sometimes. And uh, sometimes you hear, you know, little animals running around. Um, and I find that stuff just so fascinating. You know, it does look so quiet. But I, I do know what you're talking about, that sort of sense of, you know, you, you look out and you – you know, you're at the top of some, some mountain or some hill and you look out and you realize you're, like, above the clouds – And it's so it's so awe inspiring. It's so beautiful. And there's just like this this overwhelming sense of of awe, you know, and I think that is that is definitely something that's there. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I just I really do. I do. I do like being outdoors. Um, Do
0: you think that feeling of awe comes from some sort of like natural primitive instinct in us that like, you know, when you're in tune, like it sounds kind of stupid, like when you're in tune with the nature mm -hmm. around you, you feel very indescribably good.
1: I am sure. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sure evolutionary biologists probably have some evolutionary reason why they they think we we've, we've uh, have that. But I, I do think that there is something about that that is, yeah, it is it is just very pleasant to. Like be do you do
0: you outdoor. consider that at all? Like when you're when you're camping outdoors, kind of just like the the question of why you find it all so beautiful.
1: Um, I think so. I I do I do think about it sometimes. I find that like when I'm, when I feel really moved by the beauty of things, I'm not outdoors. I find that when I I think when I'm out side or you know when I used to go backpacking a lot when I was in high school um what I found really really incredible about being outdoors is just how how large it is and how much is happening in there and to some extent that's like a feeling of I don't know how to describe it other than just sort of like awe you know at how massive it is um but when I'm really moved by like the beauty of something I think that's a lot of times when I'm you know reading something or thinking about uh Relationships with new people or, or music. I think music is, is incredibly moving um, And that's that's really when I feel you know like That sense of just like being overwhelmed by by beauty. I think that's that's mostly when not which is which is very interesting I don't know what to, to think of, of that um, But when I feel like really overwhelmed by like the beauty of a moment or something like that That's usually like the realm of art for me to some degree.
0: Yeah, um, I remember talking to you a while back mm-hmm. um, And you told me that you were in theater. Yeah, right um, yes. so what was that experience like for you? We can talk about kind of just, you know, what was it like getting into theater and, and whatnot? And then, of course, I would love to talk about how just how amazing it feels to be yeah. a part of art.
1: I really, um, I really, even when I was a little kid, I, I liked, um, we used to do like these like little shows at uh, in like middle school and, and grammar school and things like that. Um, and I really I really liked doing it there. I thought it was fun. I mean, they would do like Sesame Street and they would put us in like little costumes and everyone in the whole grade would do it. It was it was, it was, was funny stuff. Um, but, uh, and then I, I got away for, for a while and when I was in high school, for the first two years, I, I played football and I just decided that I, I didn't really want to do it anymore. Um, and I was like, well, you know, I have like three hours every day that I don't have anything to do. Yeah, I need to do something. I need to do something. And, and you know, the theater was, was there as an option. And, uh, you know, I, I had an interest in it. And so I... Literally walked in one day and I was like, hey, I know people are auditioning. I walked into the office. There was like an office in our school for the theater. And I was like, uh, do you have, can I get a, like a permission slip to sign up to, to audition? Wow. And I, I did it for um, the next four years. My high school is strange. starts in eighth grade, but I did it for the, for the next four years, from freshman year to, to senior year. Wow.
0: Mm-hmm. So for most people's typical high yeah, school yeah. career, you were always in the theater. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing. So you, how many shows did you do in your um, whole time there?
1: So, at, at school, I did, um, f- well, oh, I guess, like, total shows. I did probably eight, sh- eight like, full-length shows mm-hmm. I was a part of at school, and then probably just, like, a couple of, we used to do, like, one acts and stuff like that, so. What was your favorite show um, that you did? Oh, I, I have to say my, my senior year show, Fiddler on the Roof, um... You were. I was Tevye. weren't you a lead? I that? was Tevye, Yeah, yeah. I, I love. I mean, I I just enjoyed that because it was it was nice to be to be uh, on stage. But um,
0: was that stressful, being the lead?
1: It was. Um, but I think I just sort of had to. I was like, well, just gotta get through it. Otherwise, you're gonna be so you know you're gonna feel so anxious. You're never gonna you're never gonna do it. And it was actually it was it was a lot of fun. I think by, you know, I can't remember. We probably had like ten performances or something like that. And. Um, by the, by the final one, it was it was a lot of fun.
0: I think you do learn a lot about the way your brain works when you're in shows because mm-hmm. you can you can practice a lot and you mm-hmm. can memorize your lines and do all of the very study like things that you do for school. But then as soon as you step out on that stage, like you feel different. Yeah, and it, it's very interesting because as, as an actor, you have to present yourself outwardly as something that mm-hmm. you know you're not as. The, not the same person when you go back to your family, right? Um, and so you you learn how to channel certain emotions and certain thoughts and control certain thoughts and emotions inside of mm-hmm. yourself. So you say you were anxious before this show, and I know I have a buddy at NYU for acting, and mm-hmm. he always tells me like, you know, well he doesn't always tell me, but he's told me a few <laughs> times like when you're anxious as an actor, it's very 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 close to excitement, and mm-hmm. if you just think about it as excitement. Um, you can get amped and actually have one of the best performances of your life yeah did you see your anxiety that way did you did you learn how to perceive your emotions differently
1: um I think so I think that was one thing that I really got out of performing was figuring out how to, to sort of swallow that anxiety um, which is not to say that I think I don't get anxious about anything I get you know everyone gets anxious about speaking in front of a crowd um, or you know doing doing other things. Um, and, but I think I think I got very good at, at I just sort of recognizing like okay you've got to be calm for a little bit you know and, and I think there is something it's I think that is really interesting that, you know, ang- that anxiety is sort of really close to excitement because I can kind of see that where um, I don't know I, feel, I do feel anxiety like in, in my stomach sometimes but also excitement I can feel it there and so that is interesting you physically feel them in the same it's, kind of it's place it's
0: almost a matter of just labeling them anxiety mm-hmm.
1: versus excitement yeah and it is it is I, I do remember you know on in a you know, I can very, I can very much see uh, myself on my stage and I can see what I was looking at on stage when I was in high school and sort of the... I can see the lights and how blank everything looks out in the mm-hmm. audience. Um, yeah. And I, I do remember like the first time, you know, getting out on stage and especially on Fiddling on the Roof and saying my first line, I just remember... Uh, I was like, oh, yeah, this is, this is exciting, you know, and it was a pretty... Were, we had a pretty big auditorium. I think it sat at around 840 people. And Wow. Um, Full house? I would probably around 760 my opening night. So it was, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was a lot of people, you know. Um, Once you
0: get into the groove of the show too, uh, it just, it, yeah, it, it changes is. you. Yeah, it is, it is. Yeah. That, yeah Throughout the night, of, your, your vibe just changes. It sort yeah. of
1: takes over um, and you, sort of lose yourself in it and then you realize like oh I'm saying all of these words and I'm, I'm doing it correctly and then when you start thinking about it again you somehow falter a little yeah. bit um, but no I mean it was fun yeah, you kind of come back into
0: yourself when you mess up a line you forget yeah, something yeah. on the spot yeah
1: but um, and I wouldn't say I was Josh Groban or anything but it was it was. I, I enjoyed it a lot it was it was really fun
0: yeah it's interesting that you say you like lose yourself mm-hmm. in the moment when mm-hmm. you start when you start the show yeah. and throughout the show when you're off stage yeah. and you're just all you're thinking about is your character because mm-hmm. um, I I think that, that is like one of the main reasons why when you go out into nature or you mm-hmm. listen to a great song, you play an instrument, or you're in a show, mm-hmm. you feel this like sense of flow. Like if you do you know mm-hmm. what like the sense like this flow the flow state is? No, no. The no. idea that you kind of it, it's basically mindfulness. You're not mm-hmm. thinking about anything except uh-huh. the present moment, but you're so invested in the present moment that you're not even really aware of mm-hmm. the fact that you're like so present. So like you think about when you were playing the lead in, in Failure on the Roof mm-hmm. or, you know, you're having this really crazy experience just mm-hmm. like a really fun adventure with your friends. Yeah. Like you're in this flow state where you're not thinking about what's going on mm-hmm. at school. You're not daydreaming or anything like mm-hmm. that. Um, so can you kind of talk about like, I don't know if my state of flow explanation was that good, but what are some moments, um, maybe it's related to theater, that you felt this
1: state of flow? State of flow. That's really interesting. I i have to say i think like a lot of times we're uh just like talking with people you know asking a lot of things that i'm sure your podcast covers like what is the you know what is love what is the meaning of life things like that i i do get some some really great sense of excitement um a lot of times like talking with people i think i I get that a lot um i will say being on stage is is one of them one of the few moments i i kind of get what you're getting at um also and i've said this before kind of like uh reading like some really great works uh or um, sometimes just like being at parties with friends and hanging out. But um, you're an extrovert, aren't you? I, yeah, I do. I do. I do like being around people. It is. It is. It is nice.
0: Um, have you taken the Myers Briggs?
1: Is that the one where they give you like the letters? Yeah, the four letters. I have, and I don't remember what. Okay. <laughs> what I'm, it was. Okay. I'm
0: just curious. Um, so you say like when you're like having a really deep conversation, like mm-hmm. reading a good book, mm-hmm. or, when you're, or when you're on stage, or yeah, at or a party. Listen,
1: listening to music. I mean, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, uh, the works of Stephen Sondheim have been really influential to me. Um, and, Can you
0: speak more about that? I'm not familiar. Oh,
1: so um, he actually just passed last week, uh, but he was... Oh, I, d- I did hear he passed Yes. It. Yeah, he is probably the most uh, consequential American composer, of the, in my opinion, of the 20th century, um, and he wrote musicals mostly, and he, he wrote a lot of lyrics for musicals that were not his, or music that was not his, um, but he ended up writing a lot of like lyrics and music, which is fairly unusual in the world of, of theater. And uh, he fundamentally shifted how you know the musical worked, which I know sounds like very esoteric and small to some people. But he he took the musical from being something like big and dopey and always there's everyone's always like singing about how beautiful nature is, and he took it to some level where the stories could be about individual people uh, thinking about marriage, or it could be about um, you know, a, a murderous cannibal barber in London, or it could be, but always these sort of these intensely like psychologically focused stories with, um, you know, with beautiful, beautiful melodies and with some like penetrating lyrics that really like get at what, you know, some sort of psychological insight about the world or some sort of like sense of beauty. Um, and I think one song I've been listening to a lot of, of his recently, uh, Sunday, it's the song Sunday from Sunday in the park with George, which I can't describe it one just, you just have to listen to oh. it. Um, and you have to watch it in context of the show. It's really beautiful in that moment, but it's uh, it's just so beautiful and I just love the way the melodies are, the, the harmonies are always kind of discordant to some degree and they're always, there's a lot of choppy things but the words are always so beautiful. I just, I think it's really great. Really do you know,
0: stuff. like, so it sounds like you're pretty invested in music study. Um, or at least at least you listen to a lot of music. So. I, uh,
1: part of the reason I like uh, musical theater is that it kind of makes music literary because <laughs> um, I don't know a lot of music theory. Um, okay. But I do like that's part of part of what I think is so beautiful, especially about Sondheim, is how literary everything is, mm. um, and there is a sense of, which I think this is probably true of a lot of symphonies and things like that. But there is a sense, especially in, it's easy to identify in musicals of, there's like a narrative structure, there's an emotional through line, um, and I think that is that is what I, that is the level at which like I really relate to the to the musical and things like that. Um.
0: Um, when you were
1: when you were in Fiddler on the Roof, mm-hmm. I guess at first I'll ask, what was your favorite song? Oh, that's a good one I think um, I love the opening song tradition um, yeah it it's just very exciting I love there's a lot of overlapping parts in it where mm-hmm. a lot of different groups of people are talking over each other I love the way that it builds up a world um, the world of, of Anatevka which is this small uh, larger Jewish village in early 1900s in Russia um, and it sort of builds up something and I, I think it you know, I was thinking about this the other day I don't I don't listen to Fiddler on the roof a lot anymore because it's just it's just an I like yeah, I like to you, remember our version yeah, of it. Yeah, you've been you know. around it too much. Uh, but I did, it did come on a playlist, and I heard the opening. And it really is really fascinating how good the writing is in it that I didn't really appreciate in high school. Um, but it does sort of set up this big tension of the show, which is um, tradition versus change, um, you know, and, and how tradition sort of provides stability for life. And that's sort of what the opening song is about. I really, really like that song a lot. Um, and it, it's sort of about how... Uh, the tradition and, and their faith of the of these people in Anatevka it gives them direction in the world um, because that's I think that's the final line of the song where he says um, you know without our traditions our lives would be as shaky as a fiddler on the roof because if you're fiddling on a slanted roof it's really difficult to, to maintain balance um, and so that's sort of the that's sort of the the big, the beginning of the tension of the show is you're in a very traditional place and um, you know the Russians the, the Christians want change the Russian the radical communists want change in Russia. Um, the czarist government is forcing them to change, and yet, uh, like, how do you how do you maintain that balance? How and you know what what if you think the tradition is wrong, or what if you do you come into conflict? And I think, so I think the opening song is, is really really masterful, and then one of the later songs called Anatevka, which is when uh, not to spoil for on the roof, but it's been out for <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's years. been out long enough, yeah. um, uh, and uh, it's a uh, it's a song called Anatevka, and it's not maybe like the most beautiful song in the world but it is is—it's in context of the show they're, they're being forced out of their, their homes by the, by the government and it's um, it's really moving they're singing about the loss of their home and it's, it's I don't know it's, it's very simple but it is just so moving to see how much like even little things even like poor tracts of land can mean to people and I think those, those two I think they're kind of bookends in some senses but I really like those
0: because theater theater I think more than anything really <laughs> does encapsulate the degree to which human emotion is like, mm-hmm. so ripe in mm-hmm. just our experience, um, yeah. is, and you you talk about like you know how beautiful—I I don't even know if "beautiful" is the right word—but I guess like how captivating it is for this um, Anateftna no, is that, is that what it's yeah is the name yeah. of the town. Yeah. So yeah, so like to watch these people get their homes taken from them mm-hmm. just tears you apart. Yeah, and the fact that it's not actually real. This mm-hmm. is just happening on stage in front yeah. of you, and you still feel this this compassion, this emotion mm-hmm. um, that theater drums up in you. That's another beautiful thing that I think mm-hmm. theater does better than anything is it it can drive certain emotions within you that yeah. you didn't even really know as long as you're paying attention.
1: Right, and um, you know I think some of that emotional connectedness comes a little bit from experience, and as you age, you know you can you you learn more about things and you experience things more. But I, I do agree. I think there's something about um, being in the, the presence of these stories. There's something about theater, which one is so um, it's larger than life because you've kind of got to over-exaggerate to some degree because it's not really happening. Um, but it's also, it is really happening in front of you. And I think that is uh, unusual for, you know, in a movie you're, you're very much removed and it has to be a lot more realistic. But in, in a show, the, the emotions can be so heightened, especially when music gets involved, you know, um, the music sort of elevates the, yeah, it's, the tension and the emotion of the moment. Um,
0: it's funny because I was talking to Professor Wurls um, mm-hmm. and he was giving me shit because I yeah. listened to classical music in addition to reading a book. And I told <laughs> him that during this during this time, I had like one of the most spiritual experiences of my entire mm-hmm. life. Like, I, I literally I started crying. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like I was reading this book, it was so beautiful, mm-hmm. and I had classical music on in the background, and it was just like everything was so perfect. Yeah. And <laughs> he was saying, no, 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 you have to just listen to. Allegri, which is his favorite favorite uh, opera, just by itself, you can't like do anything else while you're doing it. Yeah. Um, how do you How do you feel about that? I mean, I, I guess like musicals kind of do blend all of it together. They it's do. dance. It's mm-hmm. art. It's emotion, and it's also music. So what do you yeah. kind of think?
1: I don't know. I think um, I do like. I do, you know, I think this is something that's very much our generation, but like when I'm doing my chores, I listen to music, or, you know, even when I'm studying, I do listen to music. And I do, I do, What find kind that of music useful. do you listen to, by the way? Um, a lot of, so, I mean, I, obviously, I listen to a lot of musicals. I like, uh, a lot of, uh, contemporary pop music. I like pop music a lot. Really? Um, I do like, oh. I do like some classical music. Let me look, let me look at my Spotify right now. Uh, oh, well, my phone is off. But I'm um, uh, trying to think about other stuff. I've actually, I, I've recently gotten into rap. I'm not going to lie. I really? do I do like, uh, yeah, yeah. Like
0: newer rap or older rap?
1: Uh, new, definitely newer. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, it's probably mostly, um, probably mostly like musical theater and then like probably some like very generic top 40 hits stuff. Um, but I do, I do greatly enjoy, um, I do, I do really enjoy a lot of, Classical music, especially like I think, it's, in college. I've gotten to enjoy it a lot more, um, especially like opera and things like that. During so,
0: college, you came to enjoy it
1: more. Yeah, I think so. Like I, that. I I didn't really. I don't think I really got it in in um, mm-hmm. in high school or when I was younger. Uh, but I think, especially like you know, I'm still in, involved in music and stuff here at Rhodes uh, through choir, and uh, I've come to appreciate more how the music works together. Some to some degree i still don't really understand theory but seeing you know like the different motifs and things like that um i think has gotten to i just really come to appreciate it a lot more one of one of the i guess this is probably a symphony i don't i don't really know all of the terminology uh uh but the planets by holst Mm, oh mm -hmm. i love i love i love i was when i was driving home for thanksgiving i was um listening listening to that and oh my god it was just it was so incredibly moving um I mean, it was, it was so thrilling. Um, have you
0: listened to Vivaldi
1: um, Four Seasons? I have, yeah, yeah. That is also an incredible song. Yeah. It's just, um, I really love Tchaikovsky a lot. Um, I'm a sucker for melodies and, and nice little refrains. Um, so,
0: I, I think, <laughs> just, I mean, to get a little esoteric, mm-hmm. I think something that's so beautiful about symphonies, mm-hmm. especially, but like orchestra, any, any sort of classical music, mm-hmm. is the way that. I, mean, I guess it's any music in general just the way that different things in and of themselves aren't really unique they're just doing mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. but then put together they make this very very beautiful thing that you mm-hmm. can't really describe how beautiful it is yeah so for example in a symphony you know you have somebody playing timpani very lightly by the way and mm-hmm. then by the way timpani is only two maybe four drums right and they're plucking them in a particular way and then you have somebody playing the violin somebody playing the cello and all three, if they were by themselves, just playing what was written in the music, mm-hmm. it would be like, okay, yeah, this, is, mm-hmm. this is fine. But then when you put them all together, you're like, holy crap, this is so good. Yeah. And it it stirs something up in you, and it's like, I don't know that that to me is so amazing that like all of these things can just come together, and all of a sudden, boom. Yeah. You have this amazing,
1: which amazing is, um, I guess, like to to draw back to like some earlier parts of our conversation about. Uh, I think that's like you know I was talking about how I feel really moved by pieces of art. Uh, that's something that I find so beautiful is like when there's like order to the whole and like somehow you can see all of these things sort of like moving together and I think it's really easy to see an art because you know that there is if there's more than one artist then there's more than one but there is there is some design happening and there's some and like when you see really good art I mean it's just that's that's some of the times when I, I feel most moved sometimes you know when I'm when I'm reading a book or something like that I, I don't really process it but when later when I'm thinking about it and I can see sort of like the design that was going mm-hmm. through and I, I just feel so suddenly like oh my goodness, that's how, how beautiful that is to suddenly recognize the, the sort of the order that's being carved out of those individual little right. chaos moments. I
0: mean, like, like Van Gogh, for example, mm-hmm. Like his whole thing is that you can see his brush strokes. Right. And if you were to just look at one brush stroke, you'd be like, oh, I could do that. Mm-hmm. But then if you take us st- like five steps back and you just look at it holistically, yeah. it's like, it's amazing.
1: Oh, yeah, oh absolutely. And um, another another thing like that, and to speak of sometime I mentioned Sunday in the Park with George, which is a, a fictionalized version of the create, a fictionalized story of the creation of um, a very famous painting called Sunday on the Island of La Grande Jatte. I hope I said that right. Um, which you would probably recognize if you've ever seen Ferris Bueller, it's the painting they go see in the museum. Oh yeah, really, yeah, like, yeah, They're yeah. all like standing in the park. Uh-huh. Um, and he actually never once stroked, there was no stroke of the of the paintbrush when he was painting. It's all tiny little dots. Are you serious? Yeah, it's all dots and it's, it's about optical illusions. And he was, he was thinking oh. about like uh, new sciences, they understood light and the eye more and more in uh, the artist's age. Um, it's all about the dots and your, your mind creates the picture. It, it's not because the picture is drawn there. Um, and I think that's something really similar where there's all of these, you know, chaotically dispersed dots. And, you know, maybe there's not any black there, but there's some dark blues and some yellows and your mind creates the black. I, I think that is that is so beautiful, you know, that, that someone could think to do that. Um, and I, I find I find that thing kind of so moving. And I think, you know, there is um, some great. Nature is beautiful as well, but it's you know because it, it, there is there is an order to nature, you know, uh, at least in terms of cycles, right? There is there is an order, but I think especially in art, it's so much less subtle. I guess you can see that there is this kind of like construction of, of, of order from from chaos, you know.
0: Yeah, that I think just to also tie something back in that we've mm-hmm. talked about is uh the blend of the philosophical and the psychological. Mm-hmm. Um, so just with regard to like Sunday in the Park with George, yeah. like the painting that I can't pronounce. Uh, I, I actually, I think I have the painting somewhere in my room. I have a copy. I have a yeah, poster like of It's, in it's, my it's room. very common. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, did you get it at the Rhodes poster? I pair? did. I did. I think I did too. I got it.
1: That. I got it because of something in the park with George, but I, I did. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, but like just the way that illusions, which mm-hmm. are, it's a very psychological mm-hmm. concept can elicit a certain philosophical, mm-hmm. um, feeling within you. Like right. some, some, uh, inexplicable feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so just to kind of go back to something that you right, mentioned yeah. with regard to Fiddler on the Roof, um, you talked about the opening scene yes. and how, well, I guess really the entire show uh-huh. is about this idea of tradition versus change mm-hmm. and how faith always allows you to have this grounding mm-hmm. um, so that you don't fall off either side of the mm-hmm. roof. How do you, John, feel about faith? How has how faith played into your life?
1: Um, I mean, I, can, I consider myself a, a person of faith. Um, how it's played into my life practically?
0: You're, you're Catholic. You're, yeah, I you're am. Clarifying. I am Catholic, yes, to yeah.
1: clarify for the audience at home. <laughs> um, yes, no, I, I am Catholic. Um, and it's one of those things where I think it's so... It's been so much a part of my life that it's, it's some degree difficult to like think about individual tiny instances in which it has like affected my life. Um, but I think that when I... You know, to go back to some of the stuff we talked about earlier, like in, in, in moral dilemmas and things like that, I think I, I do rely on it to think about... Um, rely on on the, the faith to think about how one should react to, to things, you know, um, if that makes any sense. Um, but I think it's always... I don't know, yeah. I think, I think I'll, I'll leave it at that for the moment, yeah.
0: Something that I... Um, consider a lot because I mean I I'm also Catholic mm-hmm. at least raised very Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of the, the idea, and this is nothing new to any religion, but the idea, of just like, how do you know? Like you have to take that leap of faith mm-hmm. eventually to just say that Jesus Christ suffered and died for our sins mm-hmm. and then resurrected and saved all of us. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you come to
1: terms with that with that mystery? Well, to some degree, if it's if it's a mystery, it'll always be difficult to, yeah. or at least in this this life, difficult to understand. But I think that um, uh, this is. I think that the way that I, you know, I th- um, you come to understand it is. I think you have to think about it, approach it philosophically and rationally, um, and I think I was I have been very persuaded by a lot of, um, you know, the arguments of Augustine and things like that. Mm. Um, the reason I was struggling a moment ago is I think um, one of the ways a lot of people feel this way, and I, I, try well to, I try not to do this where it's like, I want order in my life, I want some kind of stability, and therefore I will believe in a God because, or I'll believe in something because that will give me stability, and I think that's a really backwards way of looking at it. Um, that's Nietzsche's argument, just yeah, to clarify, pretty much. Yeah, 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 That is that is Nietzsche's argument. I think yeah and i i don't know him well enough and this is i also get really lost in what he means here but you know something about um you've got to reconstruct your own kind of stability now and, and make a, a new kind of philosophy if you can if you, yeah. can if you can right well yeah i guess you is too general there if there is a, a great a great person out there then they can or he or she can do that for themselves mm-hmm. um but uh i would say that i think i think there has to be a be a being which is greater than every other kind of being um or there has to be a greatest being out there which I think it's similar to some ontological arguments, which I know there are problems with ontological arguments. Um, well,
0: correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't mm-hmm. Augustine the one that talks about the idea of an insatiable heart that always seeks to be satisfied, mm-hmm. or something? I think so. I think do you, so. Do you know? You know what I'm talking about? I, kind just, of. Yeah. It's one of my favorite quotes, and I can't remember it right now. But mm-hmm. like the fact that humans are always trying to be satisfied, right? But can never be satisfied.
1: And I think that points to something. Um, that, you know, we're, we're desiring after something. And I think we all have conceptions of, of something that is whole, you know. Um, and I think that is just how we live our lives, you know. The orchestra, for example. Right. Right? Like,
0: this is something that mm-hmm. when it comes together and it becomes a whole thing, mm-hmm. it becomes beautiful. Or, and, and we are satisfied, in a sense.
1: And I think the fact that we desire things, um, you know, desire is, I think, to some degree a notice. We, we feel that we lack something. You know, I, I lack food, so I desire it. Or I, I lack beauty, so I, I desire it. Or I lack companionship, so I desire that. Um, and I think that points to, we have some conception that the, there is something, we can be whole or there is something whole out there and, and we don't have that. And I think that points into some general direction that there is, um, we at least desire some kind of great thing that is, that is whole and complete. Um, and... I think that uh, when you don't think about God as you know the big man with a beard up in the sky, and you think about God as you know um, the the being whose essence is being itself, that is one really abstract. And I am not really fully equipped at this moment to to mm-hmm. explain what that all means. Um, but I think that becomes a lot more plausible um, of a God than. Uh,
0: yeah, I think I think something that people mm-hmm. maybe misunderstand about mm-hmm. Catholicism is they. They know that in the Bible, um, God is referred to as like God the Father, right? And Christ is God the Son, Mm -hmm. and the Holy Spirit is God the God the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, But these are just three ways of defining God that aren't necessarily like His true essence, right? Mm -hmm. Like obviously Jesus existed and was God, Mm -hmm. but you don't need necessarily to say that God is the Father or like God is this this man, this guy with the beard. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like what you just said about God being, being, mm-hmm. can you, can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. I, um, that's something that like, I remember thinking about that in, in high school when we, you know, I, I went to a, a, an all boys Catholic school and we, um, in high school and we, uh, you know, had to go through some theology classes and things like that. I'm, again get no great scholar in, in theology. I'm much more comfortable in the realm of, of philosophy, but, uh, I would say that, um, that is I, I i think that's um sorry i completely forgot the question for a hot second um yeah where god is you know god says i i am who i am um and what is it what does that mean it's means that that is god's the, the nature of god is is to be right he is exist you know i should not say that he is existence itself because then that might mean that we're a part of god right because we also exist you know mm-hmm. um but god is the being who's God is the being whose existence is necessary. Yeah, and that is what that um, kind of means. Um, actually,
0: are you are you familiar with Thomas Merton? Uh, uh, in, uh, in passing. <laughs> okay. He well, he's a he's a Catholic monk who lived in Hermitude and mm-hmm. in in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, he's dead now, but mm-hmm. he wrote multiple books mm-hmm. on contemplation, introspection, right. and Catholicism. He's also like pretty involved politically uh-huh. and has a lot of other things to say, which uh-huh. got him in some trouble with uh, the Catholic Church because uh-huh. they were like, hey, you're a hermit, stop yeah. <laughs> involving yourself in politics uh-huh. but one the, I think that's one of the reasons I like him so much is mm-hmm. that he was very involved in that stuff but all that is to say, his book, um, New Seeds of Contemplation, mm-hmm. which is the book that I read when I um, had this very spiritual experience when mm-hmm. I was listening to co- classical music in the background, um, one of the arguments he made, I think this is actually what made me like start crying, was he talked about Descartes' theory of Cogito Ego soon, mm-hmm. I think, therefore I am. Mm-hmm. And he says that we don't need to talk about I think and therefore. All, all we... Have to really know it at its very base is the idea of "I am," mm-hmm. and for some reason, you bringing up Yahweh mm-hmm. and the idea of "I am who I am." This mm-hmm. is what God tells Moses, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, just the idea that, like you know, God, God is saying that right there. He, he is who is. It's just it. Whatever exists is God. Mm-hmm. Whatever we can know exists. Um, so I, I think. I don't know what, what are your what are your thoughts on Descartes? Do you do you like Descartes? I mean, because yeah. he actually was pretty influential for Catholics, if I yeah. believe correctly. Well,
1: um, his his hope was, at least as I as I understand the history, his hope was to, um, rescue Catholicism from sort of the, the problems of of a reliance on Greek philosophy, uh, and, I think, you know, I I am. And this is something you know, I, I do struggle with a lot of the things that the philosoph- a lot of philosophers bring up. I think, you know, his issue of, of radical doubt, um, you know, I think is it's a really scary place to start um, mm. because you're, you're doubting everything. And I, I don't I sometimes I wonder if he even takes it far enough. Right. You right. Know, I right?
0: think that's what Thomas Merton was saying. Right.
1: Yeah. You know, he, he doesn't take it really. to the Right. Right. What is the I? Right. I think, therefore, I am. Well, yeah. How do I know my thinking? Well, how do I know the thoughts that I'm thinking are not? how do I know that I'm not the thought, that I'm the I, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, kind of, it's a scary proposition, right? You know, how do I know that any, that everything isn't, isn't fake? Um, I think that Descartes is not successful in his project and I don't think anyone can genuinely live their lives according to any kind of Cartesian principle, not in the problems of dualism, but I think starting off with radical doubt is just not a good place to start to live a life, um, from an ethical perspective uh I, I there's a i wish i could i wish i could remember the exact uh, latin words or i wish i could pronounce them i can remember the words but uh you know there's a there's a great story that i don't know how how great this is you know how uh, wonderful this is but there's a um a story called it is solved by walking um and the, the story goes that um uh one of the someone from one of the pre-socratics someone from uh i think zeno is this is apocryphal probably but zeno is talking to diogenes about uh zeno's problems of of um of motion and how motion is impossible and he asks you know he explains why motion is impossible which you can find some of these arguments in in aristotle he records them down from uh this school and uh you know zeno's talking to diogenes and says well you know motion is impossible i've proved it and then diogenes doesn't say anything he gets up and walks away um which is, like, it, yeah. it's a pretty powerful reputation, yeah. right? Seriously. Um, uh, and, right, and so it's the sense in which, like, right, logic dictates one thing, but my experience dictates another. Um, mm. And I think uh, that's, that's dangerous, yeah. right? It's a dangerous thing to walk down, but, you know, I don't think you can ever solve the problem of, of self-doubt, which is, I think, maybe some, I lead you to some Nietzschean direction, right, where it's like, well, then there is nothing, and we just get to make it all up, right? Uh, I can't really, um, but I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's good to abandon, um, just like all possibilities because you're crippled by by doubt um
0: do you do you believe that there's merit to the idea that like all religions could be somewhat interconnected um because you you talk you talk about like you know not wanting to make that nihilistic mm -hmm. take that I think
1: I think you know I don't know every single religion out there but I would say that I would believe probably all religions probably identify something true about the world um you know, um, Do you think Catholicism is one hundred percent true? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think that like, um, and uh, Saint John Paul II writes about some of this stuff. He he examines some of the other religions, and you know he writes that there's there's much beauty in a lot of other other religions, um, and they are probably identifying something true about the world, right? you know for me to sit there and like blanketly say that you know there's there's nothing to islam there's nothing to judaism or you know even to some other maybe like more animistic religions there's nothing to them people will believe them and believe them wholeheartedly and will give their lives to them right so there there's something there obviously that is moving enough that people would would be willing to make ultimate sacrifices mm-hmm. um so so why you know why why would they do that and i think it's because there is something um they're identifying something true about the world in them you know um i think in the example of, of islam J- jp2 writes about uh you know it's this kind of astonishing belief in how god is is so powerful and is so supreme that you know you must you must obey him right like you you have to and there's it's like if that's something that i think even a lot of like catholics and christians lack. right there's always a sense in which like even in, even in the bible a lot of people want to argue back to god um and that's something that I mean, i'm not saying people don't struggle in in, in um like i'm not saying muslims don't struggle with with their faith or anything like that or how to obey god or, or how to be a good muslim but you know um that that essence of like that that part of god is is, is very much like recognized in I think islam you know so like there is i think as there's people see truth in a lot of in a lot of you know i think other religions reflect truth in a lot of ways yeah. um, otherwise people wouldn't buy into them right because i don't i don't think people are
0: that's that's something that i've i've struggled with a bit because mm-hmm. it's so hard to just say like i am certain of this religion yeah because there are so many other people who are saying they're certain of their religion
1: yeah um which is scary but i think you know to some degree we we say we're certain about a, a lot of things all the time that doesn't make us actually right about them you know we're all uh, to some degree certain in our political convictions when a lot of americans go into the ballot box and close the curtain and press a button or drop a slip of paper in the box um they're certain that they're making the right decision um and yet that doesn't really because uh, you know another 50 million people are making the opposite decision that doesn't really assuage them uh from from saying that they made the wrong decision or something do you see
0: that that. as problematic because i i kind of take issue with that
1: um it can be Uh, i think if it's if decisions are made unthinkingly um then yeah it can be a problem but i think if you've discovered something true you should be you know, that's one of those things where it is it is difficult. Um, you've got to, you've got so I think, and again, this gets into, right, we talked about it a little bit earlier about, like, the tension between the um, the city, society, uh, the state versus philosophy. And then if you want to look at it, right, philosophy versus religion, um, religion makes certain claims about the, and I don't mean, like, certain as in particular claims, they make concrete, certain, absolute 100% true we, th- this is true. That is the kind of claim religion wants to make, mm-hmm. um, and philosophy is in pursuit of that kind of claim, but it's unclear if philosophy ever gets to that claim, right? right. Um, because I, there's well, always another just, question,
0: right? And there there are there are bound there are bounds on philosophy that I think religion just exceeds because philosophy can't necessarily encompass all the mysteries in life, right? Like I feel like it, it tends to address particular mysteries,
1: but I think properly understood philosophy can uh, encompass all the mysteries. And I think, um, you know, you can ascend really, you can, I think you can go from philosophy in, into, into, you know, a, a truth about the world and which you know ultimately kind of be religion. And I think, um, you know, especially early philosophy seemed to be built around cults, which if anyone knows anything about the, the, um, I don't mean cults in the sense of like, you know, Jonestown or something like that, but I mean cults in the classical religious sense in which, you know, there was sort of a figure and there was, devotion to one sort of god in particular which in this case i don't think it'd be like a real kind of god but it's philosophy and wisdom um and so you know early schools of philosophy that it seemed to be some sort of like way of life around it which resembled something like a religion um but I, i think you know um if i think that if a religion is true um then it should be so true that one even through secular means can find it um you know uh doesn't mean it'll be easy to find or anything like that, um, but it means that you, that it's there, right? If, if God, if God really did create a world, His fingerprints would be all over it, and therefore, mm. real examination into the world would would reveal that. Um, so, that's why living a contemplative life is not necessarily something that
0: Catholics are afraid of. Right? right. They actually they mm-hmm. encourage you to question and
1: faith. right, and uh, you know, and I mean, and a lot of people have different experiences with that, and I think, um, you know. One a nun that taught someone in the nineteen fifties is not demonstrative of every every Catholic or what the Catholic Church really does teach, mm-hmm. um, you know. But uh, you know there there is a sense in which um, I think a lot of people are afraid to question their their, their faith. Um, you know, like I do consider myself a Catholic, but I do you know you do have to struggle with serious doubts. You know, some of the people like Mother Teresa for years. I mean, even like at the height of her fame, struggled with like I don't really believe. You know, um, how can I believe? You know. It, and, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Mother she, Teresa? Mother Teresa struggled for for quite a long time. While she um,
0: was doing all the work she was doing. Mm-hmm. She yeah. said, I don't know if I She didn't say it. she wouldn't heard some of her
1: personal diaries and things like yeah. that. You know, and so um, I think it is you, you always want to question I mean, I think right, I think there is a strong philosophical impulse in a lot of people that doesn't mean that it wins out or that everyone is you know, everyone wants to be a philosopher or anything like mm-hmm. that. But you know, the question of like why. I think people want that and sometimes I think there's also another kind of impulse where we want a settled answer. You know, so I think there is a desire in a lot of people to not question their faith, or to just be hyper-questioning of it always. You know, I think there are two types of, at least two types of people in that regard. You know, some some people get very afraid when you ask them like, well, like, well, how do you know that Jesus was the Son of God? And Then they go like, well, you're just, you just are b- a bad person, or you know, something like that. Or
0: they know. say, you know, like, I just know it in my heart. I just know it in my kind heart. Kind of, you know, non-conclusive. But... Which
1: I mean, you know, to some degree is is quite. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's a little admirable or something like that. There's some sort of Beautiful simplicity to that, but it's yeah. also, you know, not, not complete enough. You know what I mean? It's it, it doesn't it doesn't answer well, all of the questions. It is like
0: something, this. and I, I'm learning this as I go along with this podcast. Mm-hmm. Faith is something that you can't really understand or prove until you yourself have stepped into those shoes, mm-hmm. um, because maybe you felt this way about politics, or mm-hmm. maybe you've, I'm, I'm sure you felt this way about politics if you yeah. were a Catholic growing up in New Orleans, like. You know, sometimes when you step into a certain echo chamber or a certain mm-hmm. idea, everything else around it just seems to crumble. And you are very focused on this one idea, and you start to assimilate it as, like, fully true. Same thing can be said for yeah. a religion, mm-hmm. because if you're only exposed to Catholicism, and growing up at least, and then you start to hear other religions or other ideas, you're, you're less likely to accept them as true. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing for... Theater, for example, yeah. like you and I had that discussion about theater because you and I have both been in shows But I wonder like if people who haven't been in shows listening to this podcast could relate to it. Probably mm-hmm. not Yeah, probably not. maybe they could maybe they could think about it conceptualize it but not to the degree that we're talking about it, right? Um, so all, all of that is to say I think that faith and everything um, that we've discussed is a matter of experience like you you have to just Step into it to know mm-hmm. right? Would, would you would you agree with that idea? You no know like you can't just logic your way into things sometimes you have to like mm-hmm. actually just take that leap of experience
1: yeah i i don't, I don't know because i think i think that's, that's a good question um you know i have thought about this a lot in in terms of like i don't know in, you know in terms of ancient philosophy that's to some degree kind of like a question of like you know pure rationalism versus like empiricism to some to some degree right, to, to really know something you really got to experience it or can you know something just by by, by reasoning to it or something like that mm-hmm. um, I don't know, I guess like to feel it intuitively, um, which I don't know if that's exactly knowing, um, but to like feel something intuitively, I think you have to experience it, right? Um, you know, we talked. I talked a little bit earlier about, you know, I can visualize myself, like what I could see when I opened, you know, like when I walked out on the stage for uh, learn on the Roof, I can see the, that vision of the dark audience with, with all of the lights on, but um, you can't feel quite what I'm feeling with that. You'd have to experience it yourself in that moment. Um, but I think you might be able to kind of know what that's like, you know, and whether that's my experience alone, I don't, I don't know. But like to feel it intuitively, which, you know, to like have that kind of emotional reaction or that, that desire to act on it or something like that, I don't know. if That may only come through experience, but I don't know if that's knowledge, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's a fair distinction or not, but.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's something that, I mean, we'll just stick to the idea of shows, like mm-hmm. something that shows are able to do really well is put you in the place of other people. Of other people, mm-hmm. and you can experience things without necessarily like actually experiencing them. Yeah. So that's why you know, um, I, I don't know. Like you come away from watching like a Wild Wild West movie, and you mm-hmm. you sort of feel like how it felt to be in that in that area. Yeah. At least, however, the show portrays it mm-hmm. to you, um, and you can start to sort of accept that that mentality that they may have had, and you start mm-hmm. to adopt. I mean, just for a brief moment, if if you're really introspective after watching a movie, or even during the movie. You start to adopt like some possible mentalities that they had, or you mm-hmm. know, you start to understand that culture more. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. Um, yeah, I guess to some degree, and I think this gets to some other questions that a lot of people have out in the, in the culture today about like performance and like identity as performance, and like how do we create ourselves and our our world around us to some degree. Um, what do you mean by that? Oh, well, you know, like you were talking about how you can watch a western and you try to like adopt their way of thinking or you try to think mm-hmm. through it, right? And then uh, maybe, you know, like when you're a little kid, you watch a movie and you find, you know, I don't know if you're a kid in the 1950s, you watch, you watch uh, the Lone Ranger. You really adopt a Lone Ranger. And it's not like you really are some like loner, steely kind of guy. You, but you, you adopt that because you want to be like the Lone Ranger, you know, and so right. you perform it until you are that thing. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't know if people are like that. Um, I think we are kind of set <laughs> to some, to some degree in, in our personalities and things like that. Um, but, I don't know, I don't know, I do think, I don't know, I don't know, that's all, that's all I can give at the moment. Well, I want to talk about
0: one specific thing that is very much, um, might be cliche, but the idea of, like, you know, you know, you know when you know, Uh um, the subject is love. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. And that, I mean, that is something that is... I mean, Shakespeare has some incredible sonnets that he's mm-hmm. written about it. Yeah, incredible plays. And I know you're a big mm-hmm. fan of Shakespeare. Maybe we'll mm-hmm. talk about that. But yeah. I mean, people can try to illustrate what love is—love songs, love, mm-hmm. romance movies, etc. But it's it's different from actually being in love. It is, mm-hmm. um, and that's something that you don't really know until you know. Have you Have you ever been in love? I don't think so.
1: Okay. And, uh, well, I mean, you know, obviously, like I love my you know i've loved people in my life in sense of friends but like romantic uh, erotic love i don't think i don't think so I don't think so the yeah i mean the idea of love is also very odd because you can
0: uh-huh. love very different things right mm-hmm. like you doesn't have to be romantic love i mean
1: i uh, yeah i mean i think to be a person you have to love something you love
0: your friends you love yeah. your family like yeah can you can you detail that a little bit can you um, talk about that i know i know it's hard to describe
1: yeah it is i don't know i i think um and the first time I was really, obviously, I, I loved a lot of people. But one thing that like, I've I've been very cognizant of, really, and I don't think this is like the first time I've really loved friends or anything like that, but like you know, over the coronavirus pandemic, when I was when I when we weren't on campus for nine months, I was I was in New Orleans for almost an entire year, um, and I was like away from my friends, and I, I realized like every every day I just thought about like my my, my you know close group of friends that I, I just like wasn't I wasn't seeing or really interacting with in the way that, that I was, and I I just you know that caused me great a great amount of distress and i you know i think i don't think that's love the distress is not love but i think that kind of like that is illustrative of like when i realized that i was like oh i, I deeply deeply do care for these people right because it wasn't
0: it was deriving an unpleasant emotion and yeah. you that you know if mm-hmm. if you could have you would have stopped but right the love was overwhelming yeah and i you know that was
1: that was that was a moment um you know and i think that those are those are moments where you realize that there's love i didn't you know what what it is to actually, I don't know. It's, I guess it's the desire to, to be with them. Um, you know, I think when it comes to, to love, uh, at least like thinking about it, um, I think Plato's Symposium is probably the the greatest thing ever written that I don't think I've ever been in love in the sense of like romantic. That doesn't mean I haven't had infatuations or, you know, uh, with other people but like that kind of like you know you know kind of thing i don't think that's mm. ever happened okay i, I see um, what you mean yeah, so you
0: you yeah. definitely felt romantic attraction oh yeah yeah but never but never <laughs> uh, some like i don't yeah
1: i don't think i've ever been like oh this is like the rest of my life kind right. of relationship kind of thing um uh, are you
0: curious about that at all i am oh
1: yeah i mean who wouldn't want to find you know the yeah. perfect person to spend the rest of your rest of your life with um that would you know be incredibly exciting i think but um yeah. Oh, no, no. I have definitely uh, felt, felt emotions before. I, like I said, I don't think a person would be Oh, you felt me. emotions. That's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very Mark Zuckerberg answer, I yeah, think. Yeah, excuse
0: Happy I just spent an hour talking to somebody that has emotions. <laughs>
1: to show. Um, but I would, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, that is, that is one of those things where I, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about like maybe desires or like uh, recognizing of a lack. Um, I think... You know, we, we desire to be with people all of the time, and I think that is to some degree, like, our greatest desire is to be with, like, other other people, um, or to be, like, whole. You know, that, that I think is our greatest desire is to feel whole, um, to be whole. Right, and because I don't
0: I necessarily think, know that being whole has to come from being with other humans, right? I, or do you disagree with
1: that? I disagree with that. I think, um, you know, I mean, we, we, we may have had this conversation a little bit before, but I think part of... You know, like, naturally, I think we all really want other people around. Um, one, like, I, could you really imagine a life in which you had no friends, right? Um, or if you just, like, lived completely by yourself in a, in, you know...
0: Well, there are people who do that, right?
1: Mm. But is that really kind of a fulfilling life? I, I, I don't know, you know, um, you can deny yourself that. And I think part of the reason you see a lot of people who are hermits is they feel compelled by some sort of religious experience, you know, I, um, or they feel scorned to society excuse me and so leave society um but i think you know a lot of hermits and things like that are usually religious because i think they can feel that lack of human connection with a connection to something that they see as higher right and so they're seeking that whole thing and they think that humanity is a distraction from that kind of wholeness um but i think most people want right i think uh you know when you're when you desire someone in the sense of, of romantic attraction right i think you are des- you know you're desiring to be with them and that is literally an act of of, of union right um, and then it's also kind of an act of procreation in the sense you say i'm so whole i am now creating another thing right um, and i think that is that is deeply ingrained in humans to want to want that kind of
0: that, I mean uniform. that that's a very judeo christian mm-hmm. way of seeing love as well because there's the idea of adam and eve and eve coming from adam's rib right mm-hmm. coming from one one person mm-hmm. and it, correct me if I'm wrong but wasn't Adam
1: he wasn't considered necessarily like male or female I, I don't know enough about um, okay. Genesis I mean I know a little bit about it but I don't know enough about like interpretations of ancient Hebrew or, like, yeah I,
0: c- I could have totally been making that up uh, don't crucify me if <laughs> one of my religion teachers is listening but um <laughs> I mean, it, it it is just kind of an interesting concept of like becoming whole and then creating yeah. something. And
1: then, you know, and it, it, that that may sound like very like heteronormative and things like that, but I think uh, you know a lot of this. I'm, uh, I'm I'm not obviously we're not necessarily condoning. Oh, Mentality. Yeah. I'm just exploring these like um, old. Well, but what I was ideas. gonna say is, like the, the idea of union. I think every time that there is some sort of like you know, sexual attraction or something like that, like people are like you have to literally like hold each other and things like that. Like that, right? right? So like even in that sense, like you you have you were like imitating some kind of of oneness. And I think, um, you know you look back at the, the Republic and I think, um, well, not the Republic, I'm sorry, the symposium. um, I think that is something that reoccurs over and over again. And I think, um, you know, you look at any kind of time people talk about love, like I want to be with them. I want, you know, I want to create a life with them. Um, I think you, you see that kind of, that that kind of desire to, to be whole. And then, um, you know, that desire to like be so whole that you like even create a new, new something. I mean, that, that seems pretty, like, I don't know, I think that is just something that is like pretty uh, innate within people. Like we want we want that kind of yeah. congress with one another.
0: God, it is it is so interesting. Like why mm-hmm. humans love hugs and cuddling? Because it's mm-hmm. like those you're not you're not cuddling for warmth, at least mm-hmm. most of the time, right? Mm-hmm. You're cuddling because you want to be one whole unit. Yeah. <laughs> with this other person.
1: And and you know like um you know not to not to stick on like on this the whole time like on Eros or something like that, but. Um, you know, because there are other types of of love as, uh, but, you know, I, I do think that that reflects this, this sort of idea of, um, people want to be with other people, you know, we want to find something more meaningful than just like our, our our own lonesome, um, you know, and maybe some people do do that by completely rejecting society and going out and trying to find God, or, or trying to find something to be angry at, or they think they're doing something more noble, but I think people are trying to find some, some sort of wholeness, and I think, that is perhaps maybe the way it manifests itself in, in erotic love and things like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think playing devil's advocate for Hermits, yeah. um, the idea may also just be to like lose themselves to mm-hmm. nature. Like it's not necessarily losing themselves to you know other people, right? Um, because right. it is nice to think about losing yourself to friends and family and mm-hmm. uh, your significant other as like something that. You know is very easy and like mm-hmm. holistic and healing but right. relationships are difficult because you have to deal with other people mm-hmm. who have their own stuff they're trying to figure out mm-hmm. so i mean there is I, to me there is some merit to hermits moving out and mm-hmm. trying to lose themselves by themselves
1: and that's true i just think that most when you look at most people what they want is they want um we want to matter to other people and we mm-hmm. want to do good things for people i think you know, I'm not trying to say that all humans are motivated by perfect charity or anything like that, or that like you know we innately just desire the best for everyone. I'm not saying that, but I, I do think you know we, we want recognition from other people, and it is exceptions, not the rule, who who desire you know solitude, yeah, um, or who can withstand solitude um, even if they don't necessarily desire it, but they, they train themselves to to endure it for some maybe aesthetic, aesthetic or religious reason or something. Mm-hmm.
0: It is. Um... I, I, you said you don't just want to necessarily s- stick with arrows, so I mean. Oh, we can. We can. I mean, we, can. <laughs> we can. I mean, I don't necessarily want to stick just to that either. Mm. Um, thinking more about familial love at this point, mm. family is a really interesting thing because you're born you're born into the family, yeah. And whether you like it or not, you don't really choose that. I mean, as far as like a lover is concerned, I would argue a lot of it is choice. Mm-hmm. If if you have choice, I would say a lot of it is. But family, you're born into it, and, like, I know a lot of people don't necessarily feel that they love their family, but you're dependent on your parents growing up, and you grow mm-hmm. up, like, surrounded by them, and a lot of times, no matter who they are, you adopt to love them. It, that's yeah. that's pretty interesting. It's so different from
1: us. Yeah, it is, and that's something, you know, um, yeah, family love is something that is really difficult because it's – it's one of those things where it seems to be, like, one of the only types of relationships where most people feel some sort of obligation to just stick with it. Mm. Now, obviously, again, there are exceptions, you know, sometimes families are, are really terrible and, and abusive, and so people leave right. them or, or don't speak to them. But, you know, um, and I'm not discounting, like, how, how awful those are or anything like that, or, you know, you can find that kind of love from other people. Uh, but I, I will say like it is it is really unusual. It, it, it is... I, I don't know what to really make of of the family sometimes um, other than the fact that like we feel some debt to being just like created by the parent right um, yeah. And I guess you know when it comes to siblings, I think there is some sort of like kinship of like I of understanding you know like I'll talk to my sister about things that like our parents will do and um, she and I will know my sister and I will know exactly what we're talking about or like why. Yeah why we think that's funny when shared like, shared values, it's sh- shared, shared value, shared experiences and I think that's maybe where some of that uh, love comes from with siblings. Um, you know, and also by the fact that like they're probably your parents probably, not always, you know, sometimes I have a friend whose brother is twenty two years older than her and and, you know, so like that that is you know, but like yeah, you know, but like that's that's not uh, most people, your siblings are very close in age. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and so you were, you're also reared with them, you have a lot of memories with them. Um, but I think that there is some sort of great Debt that one feels to to the people who have like brought you in, into the world, or the people who have like reared you, if you know, in the case of adoption and things like that. Um, and so I feel like we feel obligated to them as well. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It, it is family love is, is something that is really really interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I do think I think love at any level is somewhat obligatory, mm-hmm. right? Because whether it's, I mean, at, at least at the human level, mm-hmm. if, you, if you love another person, you have responsibilities toward that person mm-hmm. that. You can't just get satisfaction out of it 24-7. Right. Um, And it's the same thing for God, right? We're talking about obeying God and how our hearts are never truly satisfied in life. Yeah. um, Trying to satisfy an insatiable heart. Um, And so in order to feel whole with another person or with God, you have to make sacrifices. Yeah. Right? Um, So I, I, I find that... Mm-hmm. I find that very noble that that conversation of like uh, not necessarily I don't know if I would say obligations but responsibility toward other people I guess you could call it obligations as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but fulfilling fulfilling those responsibilities when they're when they're merited
1: right yeah that's um, and that's something I, I've like really been struggling with is like what makes an obligation obligatory you know mm-hmm. um, like what is what is the nature of obligation and when does an obligation end right because it, it seems that you know Obligation shouldn't end, right? Because that's the thing is they're, they're obligatory, they're they're mandatory. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, that's something that I'm really like. I, that's something I just I, I struggle with generally. You know, is like I, you know, I feel, I feel like on a you know you're talking about like psychological versus like philosophical. I feel on a deep level like a lot of obligations to a lot of things. But um, you know, what is what does that mean, and, and where does that come from? That is that is like difficult for me to to explain. But I I do agree. I think there's a It's interesting that you brought up like, right, you you want to obey God, um, but it's really interesting. Perhaps maybe you should love God so much that you feel like obligation is not the only reason you do it because you you desire it, not only out of obligation, Um, which is in some sense I think like the the purest form of love, but I don't know, maybe someone else would say that um, the purest form of love is, is doing something despite the fact that you don't want to do it because you have an obligation to do it and you recognize that. Self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice, you know. Um. I, I
0: do think there's something to – I know I know we were saying that it was problematic to view God as the Father in the sky. But at the same time, mm-hmm. it was definitely um, a pedalo- pedagogical um, instrument for Jesus to – and I guess G- Jewish people as well – to paint God as the Father, at least at that time. Because back then, mm-hmm. the Father, his role in one's life was, sure, to – be nurturing, but mm-hmm. in a, in a rather like harsh and punishing way sometimes, right. and to um, ensure that the children are like being reared correctly and that they like obey the father, right? Because the the father is like he was the man of the household at that time. Now I don't I don't know that holds as much water um, as our norms change, but mm-hmm. the idea that God is also of the same relationship to us as a parent is so interesting. Because parents create us, yeah. and so then, as you were saying, that's kind of where we get this obligation from, um, to serve them, and it's the same way for God, right? Because mm-hmm. God is the first cause, he's the first creator, yeah. and it is because of him that we have life. Mm-hmm. Because life, I mean, shit, that's another hour-long conversation that we could talk about, but <laughs> the, the idea of life existing is just so mysterious. Yeah, And two cells, which in and of themselves have life coming together and creating a human being is, mm-hmm. is so cool. Um, sorry, yeah. that's, that's a tangent, but <laughs> um just God is the life giver just as much as parents are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we have some responsibility toward him just like, just like we would a parent.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, um, yeah, really fascinating. Yeah. I don't know. And that's, that's the kind of thing is like, I feel like, Perhaps we can recognize, maybe like, and this is what I was saying, what I find really, perhaps maybe difficult about family, and I've, I've never really thought about it in these terms before, but yeah. there seems to be, we a lot of people feel obligation towards the family, but where does familial love come from, right? And are those two separate things, right? My obligations to the family may extend, and maybe love is just like a fond feeling towards them, um, and my obligations toward them are towards like my, my duties. You know, I, I care for my mother and father in their old age, or, you know, I, I try to listen to them when they when they tell me not to do something or I seek their counsel because, you know, the, my successes also impacts their happiness and things like that. Um, well, and, and Can I jump in here? Yeah, no. I think
0: something that's really interesting is, uh, when you're younger, mm-hmm. your view of your parents is much more as this like divine, perfect being that you must mm-hmm. obey right. to, to get to where you have to be. And your love is, is very much expressed through your obedience. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't really know about that statement but basically like you know when you when you're a kid you obey your parents um, and that's just kind of like how you express yourself mm-hmm. your relationship with them but then as you grow older and more and wiser and more understanding you have a different, very different view of your parents more as a friend yeah more as um s- some mystery in life that like you know holy crap at some point in your life you realize holy crap my parents made me yeah and now I'm Friends with them, and I'm talking to them, and I'm, I'm having a relationship yeah. with them, and you start to appreciate it more. I think the same can be said for God in a way, mm-hmm. because when you're growing, when you're growing in your understanding of God, when you're young, and back when Christ was was born, mm-hmm. the understanding of God was as this as a father, right, as mm-hmm. as a parent, and mm-hmm. you had to obey. And as we've progressed as a human race, and as we've progressed um, in our lifetime, just individually we have a much different view of God. We start to come to see Him as something other than just this this ruler that we must obey. right? Mm-hmm. We start to like feel love toward Him in a different way than just obedience or fear of punishment. Mm-hmm. We have an appreciation for Him and we, we see the mystery that lies within Him and we see the awe that's within Him. And maybe, and this is just kind of going on in my brain right now, like maybe that's why confirmation comes after baptism in the Catholic Church and confirmation comes when you're older and wiser and you are able to appreciate the mm-hmm. gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are you know wisdom and um, beauty and awe, mm-hmm. and these 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 parts of appreciating God that when you're young you just don't understand. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same thing for parents, and in fact I think it's the same thing for romantic love. And I know that like you you say you've never like truly experienced romantic love, mm-hmm. but like as somebody who believes he he is experiencing it um you as you grow in a relationship with somebody you start to appreciate that other person as mm-hmm. more than just somebody who gives you satisfaction in life yeah it's it's a, it's a much more mysterious uh-huh. love same thing for siblings as well right mm-hmm. all of these things when you when you grow and mature you have a much more much wiser view of people, but also much mm. much more mysterious view of people, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know. I mean, all of that just kind of clicked in my head for some reason. I don't really yeah. know how how powerful it is, but there is definitely something to be said about the progress that love takes. I, I think at the beginning phase, it's much it, it's much different
1: than it is at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. I I don't know. I have, I have to think about it because to some degree, I'm still. I still wonder what um, combines all of the words, like all that is like in the word love. Um, you know, and, and if love progresses or whatever we consider love to like to progress where it changes, um, I wonder what, if the, those might be two different things, like love at the beginning, like maybe that's infatuation or something like that. And then there is a, a deeper kind of appreciation. Maybe those are two separate things meant by love, but I still wonder what we like mean specifically by love this is this is a question also I'm not asking like eating I'm, I'm genuinely curious um but I I do see something yeah but about like your, your thought about like how we like grow to appreciate people in a more in a deeper kind of way um something that's like really stuck with me and I'm going to totally butcher the, the quote but it's um something Mark Twain wrote where he said I uh, I went off to school at, at the age of 18 thinking my parents are the dumbest people of the world and I came back at 21 surprised to know how much my father had learned yeah um, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, I know uh, what you're talking about you know and um I think that there's something like really true about that where it's like you, you get older and you become, as you get older, you, you care about more things and you, you love, and suddenly you realize that your parents were at some point facing the similar kind of dilemmas. Right. And you, you also, I think a lot of people feel, I think especially in modern day, we feel kind of, um, directionless, or there, there's difficult things like, why do I choose this thing over another? I, I don't know why I should do that. Or, you know, when two things you care about come into conflict, you know, talked about that a little bit earlier as well. Um, what do I do? And a lot of that comes as you age, right? You get people you're seen as more responsible for yourself. You, you say it's your life, you do with it what you want. And then you come to kind of realize that like, oh my God, my parents did this same kind of thing. And you begin to empathize, which um, you know, I guess has come back to something you were talking about earlier about experience, right? You know, you you truly, I guess, understand it in a, in a better kind of way. And so you, you grow to maybe love them in a different way, um, which I think is really an exciting thing, but I, I still wonder what the what what love is. You know, I don't mean yeah. that in a rhetorical sense because I think I, I think I have experienced it, but you know, I think my my conception of it is very is very hazy.
0: And I think love, like faith, is something that you just kind of have to strap in and mm-hmm. go along with for the ride. Like yeah. I, I don't necessarily know that you can ra- reason your way to defining love indefinitely mm-hmm. or um, definitively. I should say, mm-hmm. um, in the same way that faith is like something that. You can reason about and you can explain, you can talk about, but you can never definitively paint it down as something Mm -hmm. um, as beautiful as it is. And just kind of one last thought that I had, and you don't Mm -hmm. even have to talk about it if you don't want to, but when I was talking about the phases of love and how Mm -hmm. at the beginning, you know, you are more obedient and and at the end, you have a more understanding view, the Mark Twain quote made me just think that, like, you know, the teenage years, when you're Mm -hmm. maturing to become like an adult you rebel against authority figures Mm -hmm. and i think it's it's the same thing for god as well i think Mm -hmm. at every point in somebody's life especially people who are raised in a faith they go through a period of doubt almost everybody does yeah and they they reject god they doubt him they think it's stupid or they come up with all these different views of why the religion's wrong and then through that rejection and that you know um oh god I, I rebellion, I should say, curiosity. You come to appreciate mm-hmm. God or your partner or like, or or your parent more. Like even with the uh, romantic love, you get in a fight with your partner, and in the end, it, it makes you stronger. If right, if, yeah, if you yeah. stay together because of it, because you you understand the humanity of one mm-hmm. another, um, and you don't see each other as these like perfect beings necessarily. Right. So I th- I think I think that's a pretty interesting part of love. If you strap in and enjoy the highs and the lows it is it's a really beautiful thing and it yeah. just continues to grow
1: yeah i think um when well, there's was, there was so much there that was really really interesting and, and moving i think one i would say i think there 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 has to be some kind of, of definition of love and I, I don't know if i'm capable of thinking about it or definition of, of faith and it has to be out there or else you know how else would we know what we're, we're talking about um, or, how, or how else can we talk about one thing but i, I yeah. would say um you know, I, I'm not sure I could I could get to to uh, a single answer on those on those things, but um, I think there is something really true about some of the and really moving about some of the last things you said. Just you know, it's so trite to say that uh, you know love is important, but I think you know we we so clearly desire it. It's 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 a huge motivator about what every person does. We if you know even if you you don't feel inclined to be seeking a romantic relationship right now, you desire to be with your friends. You desire to be with other people. You desire to to um, care about um, great works of art you desire to care about something higher than yourself and that that is all a, a kind of love um, you know and I think that is something like so 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 genuinely beautiful and I think speaks to the deepest um, that, that kind of desire to be, be with other people and to to care for things and to, and to want to, to care about things is something um, so deeply human um, and I think it's something that in a lot of ways our, our culture is very afraid of, of doing that it's afraid of committing to to caring for 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 things for fear of them not meaning anything or for fear of those things rejecting them. But, uh, you know, I don't think life is worth living if you don't, if you don't care about things, um, if you don't love things yeah. and people. And,
0: and and I, I think one of the, there's a, I don't know if you watch Rick and Morty, but I was, I was <laughs> watching it with my girlfriend like a week ago uh-huh. and there's, there's an episode about these aliens that are like very intelligent. They come down and they, they make a dating app that, Matches you perfectly with people who you're you have perfect chemistry with mm-hmm. and the idea is that it keeps changing like every like 10 seconds So yes, and they yeah. go and they get married because the app tells them like this is your soulmate mm-hmm. And the whole the whole idea is that like, you know, there are many different if, if you don't commit yourself to love and you like perform it as an action there are many many different Distractions that you're gonna have along mm-hmm. the way uh, many different people that you could love, that are po- possible soulmates, or yeah, but I mean that's still a theory I'm working out, still trying to figure out myself. Um, but the idea today that it's it's more difficult to stay grounded in mm-hmm. a in an idea such as faith, such as love, or you know these these mysteries in life, mm-hmm. is something that I think is a direct result of social media and the sensations that we have constantly now because of our our phones and technology mm-hmm. and we have dating apps that are constantly you're constantly swiping right and evaluating people on just their appearance and then you're like talking to a bunch of different people all at mm-hmm. once and you're trying to like figure out all of these different possible matches that you, mm-hmm. that you have same thing can be said for social media um twitter for example with ideas you're constantly seeing different ideas yeah. and eventually fall into echo chambers because yeah. of that and you're just always distracted nowadays. I think it's very hard to sit down and live a, not live a contemplative life, but have some moments of contemplation or mm-hmm. introspection. And I think that therein lies where love is. Yeah. And God. And I think that that could be one of the reasons why we see secularism rising so heavily, and we're mm-hmm. we're sort of losing God in a lot of ways, and mm-hmm. we're seeing divorce rates rise. And I mean obviously those are all complex issues, but yeah. I think one of the reasons is that many people are losing the
1: ability to be introspective mm-hmm. and contemplate mysteries. Yeah. And, um, no, I do think, I think, I do think that, uh, you know, people did stop and, and think a little bit more and think deeply about things that should matter to them. then, uh, we'd be in a lot better of, of, a, of a place. Uh, no, no, I, I, I agree. I think, you know, um, I do care deeply about politics, and I care deeply about the world of, the world of action, but I think the world of contemplation is, is not, is given short shrift in, which is, which is really terrible, you know, um, why, why would you pursue money, why would you pursue status if, if you don't really know, if that's not really what's gonna fulfill you, and you can only really know that if you stop and, and think. Because right. you, you can ask for something, you can try to gain something, and you do gain it, and you find it doesn't make you happy, but if you just keep running around, um, you gotta think about, think about it a little bit before you, before you do something. Um, but yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I think there is a, a lack of, of care in, in our culture. Um, and it's root cause. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I don't it's know. It's root cause, But I, I, can at least recognize some sort of, of a problem. And I think that's at least a good, maybe place to start contemplating on it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Cause and, I mean, the distractions of technology and social media definitely, um, are driven from some other problem within mm-hmm. humans. So I'm not saying that that's yeah. necessarily the root cause, but yeah. Just a phenomenon I see. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're teething right on the surface of my big question for you. Oh, okay. Which oh, is, this is exciting. What is the meaning of life to you, John? Uh, uh I
1: have to think about this. I feel like I, <laughs> I think you know the, the meaning of life has to be. Uh, I,
0: li- I like that you replied. I have to think about this. Which I have to. Which <laughs> <funny>. <laughs> well, I do like, to, I Of do course. Think about of this.
1: course. Um, but I, I think it's it's to. it's probably to just to, to serve god right if, if god is real um, if he is all powerful you, you have to do that um and i think you have to uh find what your purpose is and i think that is your purpose is, is to serve god and i think probably the the nice uh exoteric way of saying it is is uh to find your purpose in life um you know but i think if you if you, if you really look at it i think that's that's where you're gonna you're gonna end up um just to, to serve to serve god or serve something Something higher than yourself, and, uh, yeah, and serving God.
0: So yeah, you you could also say that'd be serving something higher than yourself. Yeah, serving yeah. the
1: natural order. Yeah, uh, perhaps. Um, how and I think you know I I would say I would say God. I think there is a kind of a kind of a, a, of a will to it. Um, but uh, you know, I think you will ultimately serve something. You know, you're either going to serve your own desires and your own um, your own bodily desires. You're going to serve money. You're going to serve something you're going to pursue something and therefore you'll be subject to it so why not pursue the the one thing that's whole and complete and good. Um,
0: All right, John. Well, yeah. this is a great conversation. Um I am hoping that before you graduate, maybe we can record one more episode because Absolutely. this was this was so good. I hope that the listeners that are still with us appreciate everything <laughs> that we talked about yeah. um because this was I think we covered so much ground. Yeah. And we dove into subjects when we had to, mm-hmm. and we really had to flesh things out,
1: but, I don't know, it was, it was really awesome talking to you. It was really wonderful. I really enjoyed this. This was great. Awesome.
0: I've got a word or two to say about the things that you do. Thank you for listening to this episode of Links on Life with John Howell. I want to take this opportunity just to reflect on some things that caught my attention during our discussion today. I think particularly interesting to me was our discussion of the idea of wholeness and every human being's desire for complete and total and whole satisfaction. And that's something that will ultimately, at least usually, lead us to a discussion of God or this supreme, holistic, omnipotent, omniscient being. And for John, that is Catholicism. And to be honest, I think uh, a lot of our discussion reminded me a great deal of a lot of my theology courses at my Catholic high school growing up, where we would talk about reasons for God's existence. And we would contemplate the mysteries of the human existence. And I think within within everybody, they, they have this this desire for satisfaction, but they never do feel fully satisfied. They never do feel like they're they're getting that. And I think something that came up in the Professor Worlds episode, and also in this episode, are those moments of complete and utter presence. In the moment, you lose yourself to the moment. You lose you lose your sense of yourself. Um, You may call that beauty. You may call that flow, zen. There are many different names for this feeling. Love, even. And I think in all of these moments, um, if you pay careful attention, at least from what I've spoken of with my guests so far, it tends to be in moments where you have some holistic feeling about you. I think that 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 could be God's presence, what you're feeling there. Maybe John would say that. Um, When you lose yourself to a moment and you feel complete and whole within the world. And you don't feel distant or contained by your own ego. You don't feel separated from the world. You just feel as one part within the whole. And this is something that we talked about with regard to the orchestra, with many instruments coming together to play one beautiful song or many actors coming together with different parts, some large, some small, coming together and making a beautiful show. And in these moments, you forget where you are. I mean, think about the idea of going in and watching, watching a show. A lot of times, you know, the lights are dimmed, you don't have your phone out, and you're completely immersed in this, this show, this fictional uh, world along with many other people beside you and then when the show ends or maybe there's intermission you go outside of the, of the box theater and all of a sudden you're like oh my god it's been an hour and a half I, to- I totally forgot that I was even you know just enjoying myself I was, I was completely immersed in this in this show because it's so beautiful and so touching you may even say that you were loving the show um, and in these moments, I think I think there's real human satisfaction. Like It's something that other animals don't ever sense. But that, that feeling of losing yourself in the moment, losing yourself to the whole. Um, and I would argue, or I guess John would argue, and perhaps I may argue, that that's God's presence, what you're experiencing in that moment. Something that is completely mysterious and awe-inspiring. And it's something that we should we should, as Professor Worlds told me, pay attention to. We should pay attention to those moments. I think it's interesting. One other thing um, that John said that all people have some natural inclination to ask why. Um, the question of why we exist, why we're here, why does the universe exist, why do we have systems of morality, and it's it's just interesting that Professor Worlds in, in his episode said that he doesn't really ask the question of why he just kind of accepts life for what it is and doesn't doesn't ask those questions and he teaches philosophy so it's not like he's somebody who isn't concerned about those questions i hope that you all took something away from this episode even if it isn't something that i just brought up um because there was a lot there was a lot there and john was just a wonderful guest so I'm blessed that he sat down to talk with me for an hour and a half. It was really, really awesome. Thank you, John.